1: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for Thursday, May 5th, the end of Roe is nigh edition. No David and no John this week, but I actually think that's a virtue because I have here with me two people who I am so eager to discuss this week's incredible legal and political news. James Foreman Jr. is a professor at Yale Law School and the faculty director of the Center for Law and Racial Justice. James, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you. Great to be here, Emily.
1: And Ruth Marcus is deputy editorial page editor
3: for The Washington
1: Post, where she writes a weekly column. Welcome, Ruth.
3: Hi, Emily. How long did it take me to say yes to you? I oh like want to was... do nothing but talk about this week. <laughs>
1: I was so grateful that you responded quickly. It was a load off my mind yesterday. So on this week's show, we are going to talk about the leak of all leaks from the Supreme Court, Justice Samuel Alito's draft of a majority opinion overturning Roe versus Wade, which, if it goes into effect, would end the constitutional right to abortion in the United States. Our second topic will be about how this potential ruling and and really even just this draft opinion is affecting American politics. And our third topic will be talking about the Republican primary victory for JD Vance in the Ohio Senate race and the continuing problem that Republicans have in Madison Cawthorn, the young congressman from North Carolina. Okay, so our first topic, let's start with Alito's opinion. The case is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. That is a challenge to a near ban on abortion after 15 weeks in Mississippi. But in Alito's hands, this case is a vehicle not only for allowing that restriction to stand, but also for overturning Roe entirely. According to this opinion, which um, this draft that we have from February claims to be a majority opinion, it's clear that states would be able to make abortion illegal, full stop. So mostly I want to talk about the substance of opinion, but first let's just um, touch on this leak. So James, you clerked at the court for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. When you saw this leak, what did it say to you about the court's internal workings and kind of how the institution is functioning? Like, what did you think?
2: I, I was shocked. I couldn't, I thought it was fake. Uh, it was so far out of the bounds of anything that I felt like I or any of my co-clerks would have even have, like, thought was a possibility. I mean, it was just not on the radar screen of Anything that you might do or that might happen, I, yeah, I, I still am shocked.
1: And can you say a little bit about why? Like, the court obviously relies on secrecy. It makes the court stand out among the um, branches of government in the United States. But what about the culture there fosters that sense of, of secrecy, but also kind of internal cohesion,
2: yeah, I think there's this idea, right? So you're a law student and, you know, the one of the greatest jobs that you can ever get, certainly early in your legal career is the opportunity to to clerk on the Supreme Court. And so you feel a, a real allegiance to um, the the justice that you work for, for sure. And you don't want to do anything that would undermine or embarrass that justice. I mean, I worked, as you said, for Justice O'Connor, a justice with whom I often, you know, disagreed on substantive matters. Um, you know, I'm more liberal than Justice O'Connor was. And so internally, uh, we would have conversations about the cases and I would advocate for my position and she was the justice and she would make her decision. But the notion that any of that, that any of what would happen in chambers would then spill out into the public was you know just not even something that 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 you would consider and i think a lot of it was that we all value we believe in the idea that if this institution is going to work if the, anybody in a workplace wants to have an environment where you can disagree where you can reason over things where you can take a step forward and then take another step back where you can change your mind um, and especially in this kind of job where so much of it is about like massaging the, the text and changing this line versus changing that line. I think that there's a sense that for this institution to function, that has to be you have to have an environment, a workplace environment where that can ha- happen with some confidence and then the decisions get made and then the country has to deal with it and has to respond.
1: Right. So we've had a total breach of those norms, um, which is bad for the institution. And my only theory about who the leaker is, is that it was someone who wanted to damage the
3: institution.
1: Um, But Ruth, I read you this week. I know you have another theory. Um, What is
3: it? Um, I have another theory that I would like to elaborate, but um, I'd actually first like to put this this really astonishing breach of norms. I agree with what James said um, into context Obviously, we have seen some kinds of leaks from the court before. Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong wrote The Brethren and got detailed access to court actions after the fact. And we've seen in more recent years some of the cracks that ended up really showing in this one with um, leaks about Chief Justice Roberts switching his vote in the Affordable Care Act case and other other things that show this is a court that is a very fractured, very, um, stressed, I think is a good word institution. And I think that may be at play in my theory. And, and it starts with a Wall Street Journal editorial from the previous week that was very, um, aligned with the Will Roberts, um, Defect again? Yes, probably from the most um conservative block of the other five justices, and will he be able to bring some squishy person like squishy uh, air quotes like Justice Kavanaugh in particular with him? For I guess perhaps Justice Barrett, though I find that harder to imagine. Um, and so this this Wall Street Journal editorial was kind of a warning shot. Um, we hear rumblings that the chief justice might do this again. Please don't do it. Please, you know, they don't say this, quite this directly, but their message is don't go all wobbly on us, justices, Kavanaugh, or whoever else might defect. And then you see very shortly after that, this leak of an opinion. So my theory, and it's only a theory, is that um, this is an effort from, uh, you know, emanating from conservative potentially conservative clerks, I have a very hard time imagining it would be a justice, him or herself, who want to lock into place the maximalist, and we can get into the substance now, Emily, the maximalist position that Justice Alito sets out, and basically stop, um, try to bully anybody who might be wobbling um, from g- giving up that majority.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can totally see why the incentives would run in that direction. Obviously, a competing theory is that this was a liberal clerk who is horrified by this decision, wanted to kind of grab the country and shake it, hoped for some kind of backlash that might change people's minds on the court. Or, of course, it could just be someone who's like, I don't know, not politically motivated, just wanted attention to this for some
3: reason. Well sometimes things are accidents, but if but the I I spent some time on the liberal theory, but I just because it seems so unlikely that anyone is going to be shaken off his or her position, any justice from a backlash, anybody who's prepared to overrule Roe. Um I just don't see what the liberal benefit is. And I think we need to say that whoever leaked this, uh, particularly if it's a clerk, these are people who James knows this better than anybody who have spent their whole lives grasping after the next rung on the ladder of success and achieving. And the risk that was taken with this leak, um, to career is extraordinary.
1: Yes, that is true. Um, so let's move to the substance of opinion. Um, James, I wonder if you would mind laying out a couple of Alito's arguments. You know, what do you see here? What stands out to you?
2: This seems like Alito has won the big prize, right? This has been the big prize of the right wing of the judiciary for decades. Um, So, you know, Alito's opinion has, I think, the virtue of making – The argument that has been around for decades now against Roe, um, absolutely like plain, unvarnished, right? He says that constitutional rights come in two ways. Either it's in the text of the Constitution or it's rooted in history or tradition, meaning that it's a right that was protected in the 18th or 19th century. Right. And this view of constitutional rights from the right is, is, is a really well established, at, at least since the 1970s and 1980s, there's been this perspective. And that approach has, I think, you know, a great strength and a great weakness. And whether you agree with it or disagree with it really depends a lot on whether you think the strengths outweigh the weaknesses. I think the weaknesses are stronger, so I don't don't abide by it, but the strength of that approach, right, is that it does constrain judges, because to figure out whether a right exists, you just have to look at the words of the text, and you have to consult history books to try to figure out what was protected in, say, the 18th century or the 19th century. Um, and the right to abortion isn't there in either place. It was; It's not in the text, and it wasn't protected at the time of the founding, so it's out. So you don't get it. Um, the weakness of this view, I think, which is on really you know garish display in Alito's opinion, is, of course, that property white men controlled all of the rules at the time the Constitution was written, right? They enslaved blacks, they subordinated women, don't even get me started on, right, gays and lesbians. So of course, in a world like that, right, a right like abortion, which women need most of all, wasn't going to find protection in the document, or in the laws at the time. Um, And so when you have that approach, as he does, you also do things like you end up citing, you know, jurist Matthew Hale, right? The 17th century British lawyer for the idea that abortion was a crime at the time. And this is the same Matthew Hale as lots of people have been pointing out over the last couple of days, who sentenced women to death for witchcraft, right? Who thought there was nothing wrong with a rule that a man couldn't be guilty of raping his wife. But that comes with the theory of constitutional interpretation, right? It's all together. You have to have the whole package, If you're going to limit yourself to the text or the 19th century, you are going to have a reading of the Constitution that systematically denigrates rights that black people, rights that women, rights that historically subordinated people depend on. That's the deal. And Alito is like not hiding it. He's like, yep, that's right. That's what it means. And oh, by the way, and we can talk about this, it's not abortion is not going to be the last thing to go under this reading, because there is no legitimate, valid, limiting principle that would restrict this reading of the Constitution to only overturning Roe.
1: Right. So Alito says, I'm sharply distinguishing this case because it's about um, basically ending the life of a fetus, sort of tautological reason to say that this case is different. Like, this case is about abortion, so it's different because it's about abortion. But I totally agree with you that, logically speaking, it's there isn't a limiting principle, Um, the other part of the opinion that I, um, got myself enmeshed in was where he does kind of at one point turned to this question of, well, do changes in society demand that we recognize this right? And then he really kind of uses feminism against itself by saying, well, you know, in 1973, there were fewer protections against discrimination in the workplace, there were less accepting attitudes um, toward pregnancy of unmarried women, but now women have made strides in those areas. And so basically. Uh, That's one more reason this is not a liberty interest that the court needs to protect. This is a mere policy argument that we can throw to the states. Um, Ruth, I wonder if that part stood out to you or if you wanted to bring up another part of this opinion.
3: Well, what I love about this opinion is just just a grab bag of the arguments that have been um, posited and sharpened against abortion um, throughout the half century. Um, that we have had the constitutional protection on the books um one you know one of them is this um bizarre um uh, no problem women um, have full equality now argument which is you know just so patently ridiculous because um Justice Ginsburg among others was eloquent about the the absolute and there are a friend of the court briefs in the case about the absolute essential um Essentialness of the abortion right as part of being able to control your reproductive freedom and your reproductive destiny, so that you can uh, choose how to participate in the uh, um, economics of our society. Um, I, he he tosses everything in, though. He tosses in Justice Barrett's astonishing argument that this is no big deal because we now have um, uh, safe haven laws, so you can just you go through the you know, minor inconvenience of. Uh, of hosting an unwanted child for nine months, and then you just drop it off at the local firehouse. So no big deal there. He tosses in um, Justice Thomas's argument that, abortion is equivalent to eugenics and has been deployed against the african-american community and then he says oh well, i'm not really endorsing that view but i just want to kind of throw it out it, there just kind of throw it out there this is james mentioned the uh, process by which opinions are honed down and i would think sanded down and so this is the you know this is a fascinating glimpse at the maximalist view
1: Right. If I wasn't uh, so concerned about it becoming law, I mean, it's actually fascinating to have this document. Um, It will be fascinating historically when we look back and see what the court, what the reasoning of the final opinion is. Um, I just wanted to bring out one more point that um, Jamal Green, who's a law professor at Columbia, brought up was one of Alito's concluding kind of, um, I don't know, chef's kiss is maybe one term for it, was to point out that, well, women are not without electoral or political power today. And so the logic here is, well, the court is going to send this back to the states. And if, um, you know, people want to uh make sure abortion continues to be available well they can just vote for it and exercise their power at the ballot box and so it's on you and Jamal just points out that the relevant category here is poor women they are the ones whom the upon whom the burden is going to fall severely like we know that um abortion is disproportionately something that um poor women experience and they're the ones who are going to have trouble with all the legal tangles and travel problems and, you know, potential criminalization that's going to ensue. And those are not people who have this kind of political power, Jamal points out. James, as you look ahead, do you think that something like this will be the final version? And and where do you think the court goes from here?
2: Well, can I just say a l- one more thing? I want to go back to Um, You said, well, Alito has this, you know, it's this is I'm talking about abortion. And so there's a fetal life. So that's different. Um, But I want to just stress how untenable and unprincipled that distinction is and why it is so clearly not true when he's saying it. Right. Which is that his reasoning and the standard reasoning, the reasoning that will be a reasoning of the majority of the court is That it's got to be in the text or it's got to be something rooted in that ancient 18th century, 17th century history. You need that to have the right to begin with. So it doesn't matter. The the fact that it's murder, that has to do with the state's interest. Right. In these constitutional law, you have the, the what is the right at issue and what is the state's interest. But we don't even get to the state's interest. If there's not a historically protected right under this reasoning, then you, the state only has to defend itself on the rational basis test, which is the, as you know, the lowest test we have and anything goes. So gay marriage was not protected at the time of the founding. The right to, for gay people to have sex wasn't protected. It was criminalized. The right to contraception wasn't protected. Now, you might say, well, those aren't as vulnerable politically. Fine. We can have that conversation. But I want to be crystal clear. None of those rights is going to find constitutional protection under the reasoning of this opinion. There is just no other way around it. Um, and as for, you know, Jamal Green's point, I think he's right. Um, it's poor women. And the other thing to say, of course, in a lot of those states, because Mississippi women got invoked in a lot of those women are black women. And the other thing that the court is doing at the same time as it's doing this, is it is undermining the historical protections that black people have had to vote to the franchise, right, in using a similar logic. You were talking about what Justice, Justice Alito was doing, but of course, Justice Roberts did the same thing in the voting rights case, which is things to say, oh, things have changed, oh, we, we, don't we, we've, things have changed. we don't need the voting rights protection anymore. And so these things are happening together and people, need, people really need to understand the breadth of what this court is up to, because it's only when you put all of these things together that you understand how they're taking away the right as a constitutional matter as they undermine the ability of the groups that are most harmed by their rulings to politically mobilize against them.
1: Our topic for Slate Plus this week, Ruth and I are going to interview James about the new Center for Law and Racial Justice that he is starting at Yale, and especially um, a project called the Access to Law School Project.
4: This episode of The Gap Fest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family? give the moms in your life an aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame It was either for Mother's Day or for a birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura Frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. (coughs) Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Let's turn to our second topic, the political fallout and ramifications from the draft Alito opinion and the prospect of overturning Roe versus Wade. So polling on abortion is, um, very stable, but also sort of complicated. Um, Nationally speaking, there's a solid majority of Americans who think abortion should be legal much of the time, and a solid minority who have a lot of hesitations about that. Um, Only about 20% of the country think abortion should be illegal absolutely all the time. But I think that, you know, one thing that's hard to get at in the polls is uh there's lots of nuance when you actually talk to people about abortion. They have mixed feelings about it being available um with absolute freedom, but they're also not totally sure, I think often exactly how to impose rules and restrictions. And then there's the question of whether people vote on this. Um you know, since the 1980s or 70s really, we've seen um conservatives much more successful in making this a galvanizing issue that gets voters to the polls. Um and so the question here I think is if that's going to change and then how any change that would take place will actually matter state by state because at least uh right now unless congress acts which I guess we can talk about but seems unlikely this is a a whole issue that is going to move to the states. So Ruth, what do you think? Are, is is overturning Roe going to drive Democratic turnout up in the fall and going forward?
3: Um, well, it can't hurt. Um, if you were looking at this, you know, as a purely crass, um, if the thing you care about most is I, I think, li- limiting the damage to Democrats in November in the midterms, uh, which is probably the most you can hope for. Uh, this is a good moment. And uh, that said, I my baseline is a very dire baseline for Democrats in November. This may um, help turn out marginally, but at a time when we've got r- roaring inflation, um, really dismal um approval ratings for the president, this may have a greater effect on kind of limiting damage than it is on uh, transforming a a bad outcome into a, you know, maybe a slightly less bad outcome.
1: James, what do you see in terms of priorities for the left right now? Is this a more long-term argument? Is this something that, um, you know, the Biden administration should be the focus because they control um, some aspects of regulation that are important to abortion access, especially for medication abortion. Or should Democrats be putting lots of time and energy into state by state efforts to, you know, who's in the legislature to to try to affect um, the law of abortion that way?
2: Ruth is definitely more attuned to the the political realities uh, than I am. Um, so I just want to say one thing that's about the case that then is tied to this question, which is, you know, you've been talking about states, you know, which is fine. But I also think it should be clear that there is no limit, there are no constitutional limit on this opinion on the federal government passing an abortion ban as well. The only limitation that might exist there would be, you know, the question of does the federal government have the power to do it under the Commerce Clause, which is a separate constitutional question. But I think most people think that it would. Um, although, again, with this court, you never know. The reason I think that is important and I get, again, people say, oh, well, even if they can do it legally, they wouldn't be able to do it politically. Even if they get even if the Republicans get the House and they get the Senate and they get the presidency, Because of the filibuster, you know, I'm not sure what the the reason is that people are so sure they couldn't get it done politically. But to be very clear, to be very clear, they can do it legally. And the reason that matters is I don't think there's been a lot of conversation about like, oh, I'm good. Because like, I live in a place where my state, of course, I live in Connecticut, my you live in Connecticut, our state would not, you know, ban abortion. Um, And that's true. Um, but if the federal government bans it, the federal government bans it. So I just want to, again, make clear that has to be on the table when people talk about what they want to mobilize around or not. To answer your question, um, Emily, I think that this has to be an issue that people try to mobilize around that they should, that that mobilization should primarily be done will necessarily like most political mobilization will have to be done at the state level. It will also then have some federal um, ramifications. But I'm, I'm want to just can I if I can ask Ruth a question, because she mentioned the different reactions of the two parties, right, politically and saying, well, the Democrats have been, you know, talking about this and the Republicans not so much. I find the Republican reaction, the Republican political class's reaction to be a little bit bizarre. Like I, I'm trying to think of what the counterexample would be where, and I don't know the closest one that I can think of, of like a 50 year long legal campaign is like Brown versus Board of Education. But I'm trying to think about the thing where, you know, the side that was fighting for more rights in my you know view of the world, finally overcomes all of these entrenched legal obstacles and wins and then has absolutely nothing to say about it
1: dog caught the mail truck
2: there wasn't that among civil rights advocates among black activists there was no uh notion that we were going to be quiet about brown so what how what's 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 that about
3: i i i think it's conflating um two sets of actors um the true believers, the the people who have been mounting this, you know, 50-year campaign to achieve this moment, who said, if the court doesn't do it now, the whole 50-year campaign, uh, everything that we've put into the Federalist Society and transforming the courts—Ed um, Meese wrote an uh, op-ed for The Washington Post along these lines—will um, have been for naught— um, they know they can just bide their time and celebrate when the time comes. But that's one group. The other group are the political actors for whom, yes, they will be delighted um, when this moment comes. But they care. And I, I'm the person who is in my head right now and the prime um Example of this is Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, possibly soon to be Senate Majority Leader again, Mitch McConnell, whose eye is on the much more immediate prize of control of the body after the midterms. And he's a political actor and he does not see the immediate advantage in terms of voter mobilization and turnout that Democrats do. He, he knows he's in good shape without this politically.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So, James, you were talking about the potential for a national ban on abortion. Right now, the Democrats control Congress in the White House. Um, the House passed national um, allowance for abortion um, this winter, a bill, the Women's Health Protection Act that would essentially turn Roe into law. Uh, there. are on paper are enough Democratic votes um, to pass such a law in the Senate. Of course, that would require getting rid of the filibuster. Joe Manchin, um, as usual, is not interested in doing that, nor are Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, who are the two Republican pro-choice senators. Um, So I think that we're at an impasse, nationally speaking, But I do want to talk a little bit about the Biden administration, because one of the things that is going to be really important going forward are the rules for receiving medication abortions. These are abortion pills that don't require you to go to a clinic or have any in-person doctor visit. This is something that has been there's been evidence for for a while that medication abortion is safe and effective um, done at home. But we really, really learned this during COVID because the FDA lifted the regulations and there have been studies done and... um, Um, Women with, you know, help over the phone or over telemedicine really can do this safely. 19 states either ban or restrict abortion by telemedicine. And there's a lot of fear about prosecutions um, related to this. The Biden administration could make things a little easier by lifting the remaining regulations on mifepristone, which is one of the drugs in the abortion pills. It's still um, pretty tightly regulated in terms of doctors prescribing it and pharmacies being able to mail it, and the FDA has still been working on that. So that is, um, I know, a kind of wonky thing, but something I'm watching really closely. One of the other things, the Congress or the Biden administration could try to do is to preempt the state restrictions on telemedicine um, by arguing that federal law reigns supreme here and the states don't actually have the power to impose greater restrictions on this form of abortion than the FDA does. Um, Ruth, I wonder what else about the kind of politics or law here is on your mind?
3: Well, so many different things. Uh, the, The country is going to be divided into abortion havens and abortion deserts. And um, the this has just enormous impact and really reaffirms the point that James made that we that this is going to have to be contested on a state by state level, but that it is going to be very, very difficult in the states perhaps where women um poor women women of color are going to be least able to get themselves out of the abortion desert i mean it's going to be a pretty big desert because it's going to be contiguous state after contiguous state um to an abortion haven are going to be the places where the clim- political climate is going to be least amenable to providing abortion rights and organizing for abortion rights and in fact is going to be maximally why would if you're Texas why would you stop at six weeks when you have the ability to prohibit abortion in its entirety that's um, where we're going to be that that's kind of thought number one thought number two um, has to do with um, the really interesting questions about interstate travel and and kind of surveillance I guess of women who are pregnant because I think that um we're not really going to be entering an era of back alley abortions as much as that the back alley is now going to be our because of the um, availability of medication abortion. The new back alley is going to be your mailbox. Women already can obtain abortion inducing drugs um, on the internet, not always safely, um not always appropriately, but it can be done. This is, the, this is going to be the new route to availability, and there is going to be a countervailing push, I am certain, um, to have people um, prevent women in the states that prohibit abortion from accessing these drugs. Uh, and you can imagine all sorts of prosecutions and other um, problematic actions that ensue.
1: Yeah, I feel worried about this because you're totally right. On the other hand, I don't want to give people the sense that this is scary because if you do it with the with advice, like you go to Aid Access, which is online. Um, Rebecca Gompertz is the doctor who runs it. I wrote about her years ago. She has a very strong um, track record of doing this safely and effectively. Like it is safe. And presumably people are not going to be opening your mail. That's the federal post office, not the red state's. But honestly, we just don't know because this is a set of circumstances we haven't faced. Um, There are also things, though, that the abortion haven states can do. And actually, our state of Connecticut, James and my state, um, just passed a bill that would protect doctors who provided um, abortions across state lines as long as those abortions are um, in accordance with Connecticut law. And so the idea here is, you know, currently, if you commit a crime in another state, Connecticut will extradite you to Texas and your medical license would be threatened. And there are all kinds of bad consequences that flow from that. And Connecticut is promising to protect abortion providers here from those kinds of um, problems. And, you know, we'll see if laws like that pass in other states and whether that makes a real difference. Um, There are lots of unknowns here and lots of legal hoops. I don't want to make it sound easy because it's not, but um, it's going to be part of the picture, presumably, going forward. Let's turn to topic three. J.D. Vance is the author of Hillbilly Elegy and um, a favorite of the billionaire Peter Thiel, who gave $15 million to PACs that supported Vance in the Republican primary. That is the largest amount ever for a single Senate candidate. And Vance won in large part because he got a big boost from former President Trump. He had previously been a critic of Trump's, but he apologized, Um, got back in touch with Trump through Tucker Carlson, whose show he's gone on a lot. Um, And Trump endorsed him in the middle of April and suddenly Vance shot up in the polls. So, you know, the obvious lesson here seems to be that Trump's influence in Republican primaries remains strong. Um, Ruth, I wonder, as you look at this race and some of the other primary results, you know, what your feeling is about what this means going forward um, toward November and beyond.
3: So I'm a little torn between um, my heart and my head here on the implications of Vance at all. Um For the power of Trump, Um, my heart wants to say that there are reasons, even uh, despite the fact that the Trump preferred and endorsed, though not always correctly identified, um, candidate one. um, Trump kept messing up Vance's name, um, and seemed not entirely, unsurprisingly, not entirely committed to him. um, That you know there. There were a lot of votes in Ohio for some non-Trump supporters uh, on the Republican side, et cetera. However, um, look, the Trump can't endorse candidate one. That might not um, last, uh, but that might not be the outcome in some of the races that are coming up, particularly in Georgia. But the former guy uh, is getting better at this. He um, swallowed his um, pride and accepted J.D. Vance's groveling. Um, And it wasn't just that J.D. Vance had criticized him. He had really gone after him. And uh, J.D. Vance flipped and groveled and Uh, Trump, as he has learned to do and quite enjoys, um, accepted the groveling and apologies, and he is doing a better job of identifying the winner candidates and culling out and dropping his endorsement of loser candidates. And if you wake up every morning, as I do, um, fearing a Trump candidacy and a second Trump presidency, I think you're not feeling as good today as you did on Tuesday morning.
1: James, one of the striking things about watching J.D. Vance is how much he has moved to the right. Um, I guess we should mention he's a, a law school graduate. I didn't know him at all when he was here. Um, but it's just Nor been, did I. Okay, nor did you. It's been pretty remarkable, I think, to watch someone who made this argument in his book that was really a kind of internally focused book about, um, you know, white people from Appalachia and the poverty and the way in which um, their lives have been kind of depleted. And in some ways, I had a problem with that book. It sort of blamed them for their own fate. But now we're in very classic Trumpy territory with Vance where he's, you know, blaming absolutely everybody else, especially um, immigrants, for problems that, um, you know, this group of Americans have. And I just wonder what you make of that and, like, what this kind of... I mean, I guess we know what this signifies for American politics, but is there something surprising going on here? Or is this just like a box that you check now to win?
2: I guess, you know, I, I had the feeling watching what happened to Vance, uh, I've, ha- I've had the same feeling that I've had previous times, which is like wondering how somebody's desire for power could be so strong. That they would just be willing to uh, make a fool of themselves intellectually, uh, you know, reverse themselves, say things that are exactly the opposite of what they said not that long before, um, and I think for those of us who uh, who live in a world of ideas. Um, It's so and spend so much time trying to figure out like what we think about an issue and why and justifying it and defending it and articulating like we the three of us, we all do that. And so (laughs) for better or worse, yes, right. And right. Not always successfully, but like that's how we're wired. Um, And so for people like us, I think you just it's impossible to to watch this and 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 understand the, the brain of somebody who would do that. And I think why Vance is gets so much attention is that for a little bit of time, people who worked with ideas principally and people who wrote thought, oh, he's one of us. Like I might disagree with what he has to say here, but like I get this kind of person. I am that kind of person. And he's not. Um, and so I, I think it's almost like different species or something trying to understand one another. Um, right? Because we don't go through all of this sort of twists and turns to try to figure out like Trump. Trump does this all the time. Like he's constantly, you know, reversing himself and 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 no one asks the question, like, oh, why wow, that's so strange that he did that. So I guess that's where so Vance is that kind of person. He is a kind of person who who relishes power and influence above all else, and will do whatever he can to achieve it? And once you know that you're dealing with that kind of person, you just can evaluate them on those terms.
3: Uh, that yeah. describes a whole heck of. I, I this is not an endorsement of that approach to life, but that no, it basically, is
1: your, oh, truth. It's your secret. It's your uh, secret idea it, of how to live.
3: It. it no. It. This is the essential explanation of the political animal. The political animal thinks in order to wield power um, in the better form of this, in order to represent my constituents effectively, I have to be elected and then I have to win a re-election. And so in order to do that, I'm going to have to... um, Sit on my hands and swallow and keep my mouth shut sometimes. I'm going to have to say some things I don't necessarily believe in. It is to, and I'm just, this is the rationalization, it is to a greater end. And that I can't, cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with politicians along those lines over the years.
1: Politicians of all stripes. Correct. And you can tell which of the three of us lives in Washington from that. <laughs> reality check
3: (laughs) Um, Or, or its environs
1: right exactly i mean one other thing about um this the trump candidates um who may advance and then whoever else advances and whoever actually takes office these are folks who are committed to the idea that the 2020 election was stolen and i wonder going forward um you know james what you think the implications of that are
2: I mean, I think the implications of that, you know, have been, are, and will continue to be disastrous. Um, they they know that it wasn't stolen. This is, again, back to Ruth's point. Like, that's this is one of the lies that they are willing to tell. And maybe they have a, a larger justification for it, as she, she describes. But the idea that when you lose an election, you accept defeat and then you go on to try to win the next one is it's foundational to democracy. You just cannot have a democracy without that uh, point of view. And it's always been one that we've seen political leaders across, you know, Hillary Clinton, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush. It, it, it's Al routine. Gore. Al Gore, right. It's just what you do because even given what Ruth said, even if you are that political animal, And you believe that you need to be in power to get the good results, right? And you're willing to justify a lot of things. You do have a larger belief in our democracy. Like you do, above all of that, you believe that we have to have a system where the person who gets the most votes goes into office and you accept defeat, you congratulate them or not, but you move on. And that is more than anything else, that is what Trump ruptured. And he has changed that calculus now for the near future, maybe the long future, maybe our lifetimes, maybe forever, I don't know. But to me, that fact that you just identified is the most dangerous thing that we face in terms of having a democracy in the future.
1: Um, I feel like I'm moving from tragedy to farce, but I just want to touch on um, Madison Cawthorn's dilemmas. Um, This is the 26-year-old Republican congressman from North Carolina who was caught bringing a loaded gun through airport security a couple of times. Um, He's been pulled over for driving with expired tags. There have been allegations against him of insider training, recently photographs of him partying while wearing women's lingerie. Um, And then I think uh, this week, a new video of him engaging in some kind of, I'll say it in a sort of prim way, engaging in some kind of sexual horseplay with another guy in a bed. Um, I would not care at all about whoever he is having sex with or whatever lingerie he was wearing if there wasn't this, you know, problem of also being super anti-LGBT in the way he presents himself. Um, (sighs) Ruth... I mean, this is a thorn in the Republican side. They would love to get rid of him. There are challenges about whether he can run again. Do you think those will go anywhere? Do you think they're just kind of stuck with
3: this guy? You know, if you wrote this character into Veep, the the writers' room would say this is too extreme and too unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> just like, even for Veep, it's too much. Yeah, tone it down. So I I do. I do think that the, you know, there is a self-protective kind of immune system um, mechanism that political parties have to repel and expel people and repulse them that that threaten them. And you've seen this at work in the really remarkable attacks from his colleagues uh against Madison Cawthorn after he said that they were a bunch bunch of uh, coke snorting orgy oh, yeah, I that posting one the yeah one, actually. yeah gra- well it's hard to c- contain everything within the scope of one short gab fest um you kind of think that the um there's enough straws uh that madison Cawthorn is just going to be like a, a a final jeopardy answer someday but it's a crazy crazy world who knows
1: Let's um, move on to cocktail chatter. I hope each of you has time for a nice, peaceful drink over the weekend. And it seems like it might even be nice. We're finally having all the cherry blossoms um, bloom here in New Haven, which I've been waiting for for so long. Um, James, when you get to take a break this weekend, what will you be chattering about?
2: Well, I'm going to be chattering about uh, a new uh, book, a book that's coming out that I recently got the galleys of and have just started dipping into and really excited about. Um, It's by somebody that uh, you and I both know, um, Nicholas Davidoff, uh, and it's called The Other Side of Prospect. And it is uh, a book. um, It's about New Haven, but it's about you know, the 80s and 90s and the generation, you know, that's the mass incarceration generation. um, It's one of those, um, it's one of those books that really is, uh, you know, a great urban story with some key characters that show you a lot about how deindustrialization and inequality and over-policing and over-incarceration, the kind of impacts that they can have on a community while people still in the midst of all of that, you know, strive to to love and to be kind to one another and to raise their families. And so I've just started it, um, but I'm going to spend the first half of the weekend finishing it and then the second half of the weekend chattering about it.
1: That is great. I am jealous that you have those galleys. Nikki um, is an amazing storyteller and I'm really excited for that book as well. Ruth, what will you be chattering about over your cocktails this weekend?
3: (laughs) Well, um, I am going to channel my inner Jamel Buoy here um, and uh, talk about cooking and in particular kitchen gadgets and my favorite pandemic economic um, factoid Um I love a good kitchen gadget. I have a um kitchen full of (laughs) perhaps largely unused kitchen gadgets. Um the my favorite pandemic factoid um has to do with the popularity and consequent um unavailability apparently during the pandemic of waffle irons, a pre-existing kitchen gadget of mine. But I uh, was told by a senior economic official that um, one of the things that happened during the pandemic was lots of people bought waffle irons and they were, I think, um, consequently hard to obtain. I obtained without any supply chain Uh, problems whatsoever. My latest kitchen gadget, which is what I'm going to be working on and getting up from putting down the cocktail to um, work on this weekend, which is an air fryer
1: oh tell us about that Do you know how to use them? I'm sort of fascinated but kind of like
3: nerve I like don't Well, totally so get it. I was like real I was like this is a really big gadget you have to have the storage space for it do I really need another one and then my friend a friend of mine um said no 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 you really need it it's fries with either air or very little oil and so I did it with carrots and um green beans and potatoes the other night it cooked them up in like incredibly short time, like less than 10 minutes. It was really good. My husband had bought this ridiculous um, sheet pan concoction, which was like you open the bag and there's potatoes, green beans, and carrots in there along with spices. And I'm like, I can't believe you spent money on this pre-existing thing. But then I used it for the air fryer. Um, And this weekend I want to try the Brussels sprouts and the sweet potato fries and the tofu. You put it in the basket and you kind of put it on one layer and then you get up, you put your cocktail down, you shake it around and you dump it out. And it was pretty good.
2: Ruth, can I just say that I got nothing on air fryers, don't know how to use them, but my waffle game is on point and has been for (laughs) decades. So the next time you're in New Haven, uh, please come by and I'll hook you up.
3: I am, I am waiting among many other things for my waffle invite. (laughs) (laughs) You have to come visit us now.
1: My chatter. Okay. Is maybe a little pathetic this week, but I'm going with it. So um, if all goes well, uh, my husband and I are getting a puppy next week. This is a puppy whose arrival I have been anticipating for months. Um, I looked after somebody else's dog all um, fall and adored that dog and actually then decided I needed essentially that dog. Um, and so so that is how a small Cavapoo will be arriving at our house next week. I know that it would be more virtuous and really better for the world and probably us to get a shelter dog, but my husband is super um, allergic to dogs, so we have to go hyperallergenic. And so this dog is arriving and... I'm chattering about this basically because I'm obsessed with it, but also because I've never raised a puppy. I know how to take care of dogs. I grew up with them. I love dogs. And like I said, I loved the dog who we were taking care of in the fall, but I don't know how to do puppies. So I am totally looking for puppy tips. Um, And please send. Sounds like Ruth is going to help me out with this. Um, We just saw your very cute dog on camera for a second. So I trust you. Anyway, I'll let you guys all know how it goes. We're going to name her Rosie. Our listener chatter this week comes from Joe Straci.
5: Hi, GapFest. I've always marveled at the ability of others to manage to send the show something that impresses or inspires or delights. I have finally, finally stumbled across something that I think fits the bill. It's by Kevin Kelly, and I think he describes it best. Today is my birthday. I turned 70. I've learned a few things so far that might be helpful to others. For the past few years, I've jotted down bits of unsolicited advice each year, and much to my surprise, I have more to add this year. So here is my birthday gift to you all, 103 bits of wisdom I wish I had known when I was young. What follows is a collection of nuggets of wisdom. Some run right up to the line of cliche, some are modern and fun, some are whimsical, some are perfect, that I'm absolutely certain will impress, inspire, and delight. A couple of my favorites are The Biggest Lie We Tell Ourselves is I Don't Need to Write This Down Because I Will Remember It, and What You Do on Your Bad Days Matters More Than What You Do on Your Good Days. Thank you all for such a wonderful show.
1: Thank you so much, Joe. That was lovely. All right, that is our show for today. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our producer is Shayna Roth. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of podcasts for Slate. And Ben Richmond is senior director of operations. For James Foreman Jr. and Ruth Marcus, I'm Emily Bazlon. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, Slate Plus. Um, The plan for us today is um, Ruth and I are going to interview James about the Center for Law and Racial Justice, which he is developing here at Yale, and especially a project that I know is um, dear to James's heart called the Access to Law School Project. So, James, access to law school for who? Um, What are you working on? And why is this something that you're putting your energy into?
2: Yeah, absolutely. This I, I really love this project. So... It all started when, a few years back, I was teaching in prisons. I teach a class, a class about the criminal justice system in prison every semester. And over the years, my students who are incarcerated would come up to me at towards the end of the semester as they got to know me a little bit better and say, you know, could I ever go to law school? Is that a thing? And I would tell them yes. And over time, I would assign them readings by, you know, including, you know, our friend Dwayne. Dwayne Bess's amazing article um, in, in, in your magazine. And that was good. I was instilling in, in them the belief. But, you know, the belief is step one. But then the other thing is, okay, so what's the pathway? Like how, if you historically have, you know, went to underfunded schools, went to segregated schools, didn't succeed in school, now, how are you – you've somehow managed to graduate from college or at least become a senior in college, you want to go to law school, what would that look like for you? So along with a group of Yale Law students, uh, I decided to start this this program called the Access to Law School uh, program. And what we do is we recruit first-generation students, students of color, some but not all uh, formerly incarcerated students,
4: That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.